Welcome to the Frontier Psychiatrist Podcast. I'm your host, Owen Scott Muir, MD. Nothing particularly significant or important. It wasn't uh, terribly dramatic. That boy needs therapy. That boy needs therapy. Lying down on the couch. That's crazy when we've got effective interventions at our disposal. What does that mean? Artifact sizes, empirical questions answered left and right. A lot of psychedelics became All night. A lot of the psychedelics became illegal. Transcranial magnetic stimulation. Life is rubbish. For all of us. Welcome to the show. The Frontier Psychiatrist. Let's go. That boy needs therapy. That boy needs therapy. All that's going on here is that these people do not have a language for talking about their thoughts and their feelings. And as soon as they start talking about their thoughts and their feelings, they don't have to do crazy things. They don't have to do crazy things. Hi, I'm Anthony Stearns. I'm the founder and CEO of IRX Reminder. I'm Owen Muir. This is the Frontier Psychiatrist Podcast. Anthony and I have been working together for, God, how long now? (laughs) A long time. Like the first few months of COVID, whenever Clubhouse was a thing, I started following Carlene around as you would do sessions on different specific diagnoses, right? So so I was like, I need to learn about bipolar disorder because I'm working on a grant. So I'm (laughs) sure I catch that one. (laughs) <laughs> and you're working on depression. And I was like, okay, got to go. And then I was like, hey, you were always saying that drugs don't work, but is it because of they don't take them right or that they don't work? And so we that's how we connected through having that discussion. Yeah. You have a background as, if I remember correctly, you have a PhD and that's in organizational psychology. With a certificate in gerontology and in healthcare management. I have graduate certificates in <laughs> very disparate topic. You're a professor of, I don't even know what you teach now. <laughs> I've taught in psychology, education, nursing, research administration, and compliance, and I mostly teach in business. I thought I was a weirdo because I have had teaching gigs in medicine and paramedic school. I've taught architecture, but you have more schools in which you've taught than I have. Yeah, just I've taken graduate classes in fine arts, but I haven't taught in fine arts. So that's, <laughs> that's I, next. I need to go next. Yeah, in my retirement, I'll finish a fine arts degree and we can go play bass. We'll have a symphony of basses. Yeah, we're both bass players for the audience. The, the problem you so relentlessly focused on in your career is this problem of, did anyone take their medicine? <laughs> And there is an assumption from doctors like myself that if we prescribe a medicine, someone takes it. How did you first stumble upon the question of, did anyone actually take their medicine? I was doing research in dementia. And we were seeing two major reasons in the literature why people were losing their home. They usually have a crisis, either because they wandered from their home or they didn't take their medications correctly. And often they were taking too much medicine. It's not just they weren't taking it. They, because they have dementia, the ability to do the thing, which is organize how much medication you take, goes wrong. 
Yeah, generally the, your time sense is not right because your short-term memory is not coding correctly. The procedural memory is still there. So you see the pill box, you open the lid, you take the next set of pills. And since you're not really aware, is it still lunch? Is it, it must be lunch by now. I don't want to get in trouble because I have negative feelings about being told I miss my medication. So people will triple up on their heart medication and they'll thin their blood too much or they'll race their heart. The discovery cohort, the group of people were people who couldn't remember that they had already taken their medicine. And that was very different from the social cognitive theory of Dr. Park that said that 80% of medication errors are due to forgetting. Oh, so it was <laughs> erroneous remembering as opposed to forgetting to take. And so you saw there was essentially a problem with the theory. So the other thing about the seven-day pill box that bugged me is that it's just a random group of pills. And the whole reason that you have a label on your bottle of pills is so that you get those warnings every time you open it up and you are taking them the right dose. Now, people who are able know that this little blue one does this and this little red one does that. And so they know exactly what their medications are all about. But as you get more cognitive impairments, uh, you, you miss, you, and then things change, right? So it, if you don't want to, if your doctor writes a new script, you want to use up the pills you have. You don't want to go back in your difficult to pull out things tray and substitute the little blue pill for the big red one now. Maybe you forget. You remember I need a new pill, but you forget to take the blue pill out. And now you're doubling up on medication again and you make an error. One of the reasons that medication errors are so bad is because people want to do the right thing. <laughs> Essentially, they're completionists, right? They want to get rid of all the meds they have. And there is a number of pills at which nobody can keep track of it. Yeah. And it's like the number of pills people have when they're on transplant or they have more than three chronic illnesses. Yeah. And if they add supplements in, which they're highly pressured to do in the modern era, it gets even crazier because there's no room for those pills. And they're big. Some of them are yeah. really big. All the supplements are crazy big. I remember when I was in med school, we had, I went to the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry, which I can't say enough good things about. But one of the good things they had us do was actually go to a family's home and just see what it was like. And I remember my buddy Jackie, who's a, a great geriatric psychiatrist now, her trip, she went and she visited a patient with MS. And she came back and she said, they had so many medicines. The only person that's more is you. <laughs> oh, man. And I, she was razzing me, but she wasn't, also, she wasn't wrong because I have bipolar disorder. And I, at that time, I was on a number of medications for that. And I had the medications for headaches and stuff like that. But for people with a complex anything, there was a failure of imagination that for some reason you didn't have. <laughs> and that's what I'm really interested in is how did you avoid the failure of imagination that essentially every doctor has, which is 
that I'm going to prescribe a pill and people are going to just take it just fine because your career has been based around not accepting that hypothesis. I want to say a couple things um, that maybe don't answer your question right away. The first thing is I I met someone in in the course of our work that took 36 medications, 36 physical pills a day. And she had four chronic specialists. So she would see one a week so that she could see them all uh, per month. She had emphysema was one of them. Diabetes was another. She had some kind of skin conditions, I remember. And something else was wrong with her circulation, I think. Maybe it was migraines, something like that. But she had all these pills. When we presented her with our technology, which is a smart pill bottle, she was an early success for pill packing. And what she said is every time I go to the doctor, I get an adjustment. And so I get this box at the beginning of the month with all of the pills. And they're packed up in their daily packets. So then he shows up at the doctor. They change something. They don't correct the packet, but they send a new little packet with the correction. And then she goes to the next doctor and now they send another packet. This is a person who's a good example of she knew everything about her medications. So she knew exactly, but I didn't, I couldn't even, a lot of them looked the same to me. So I, and I was like, I don't think our solution's the right solution, but you have a real problem with pill packing (laughs) because it's going to kill you when you have a bad brain day. So that was a lot of meds. And I'm not sure that any solution is going to help that person. And and transplants have the same problem. They're starting with about 25 meds coming out of the hospital, and they're pretty weaned down to maybe nine pretty quickly, and then they're down to three or four chronically forever after that. But even three Um, or four medicines might not be three or four pills because God knows Uh, It might be multiple times a day. Uh, Seizure medications are the ones that always seem to screw everybody up because they're taken three times a day, even to this day. Mm -hmm. And for whatever, for some pharmaceutical reason, in those midday pills, it's just what screws everybody up. My father had his hips transplanted. And there's a, I don't remember, maybe you'll remember the medical thing, but when they take too much bone, you get a lot of blistering on the skin a week later. The person who taught me anatomy lab was the inventor of the hip replacement. And we asked him, you'll like this question, in anatomy lab, because he retired from being an orthopedist, but he kept teaching medical students. And my housemate, Mark, said, how do you know when you've, how do you know how hard to hammer in the replacement? And he said, it's one hammer strike less than it takes to shatter the femur. And Mark said, how do you know what that is? He said, well, you shatter a couple of femurs. That kind of thinking is really common in surgeons. They accept that there are risks and they're going to have to, they're going to fail in the process of learning how to do it right. I think that was communicated both as a kind of social lesson about doctoring and a practical lesson about you're going to fail. And it seems like for doctors who are prescribing medicines, we don't anticipate that failure as well as you have. Until you walked me through, and, and maybe you can talk a little bit about how because there is technology behind the IRX. It's not just a bottle, right? There is a reinforcement mechanism to help people remember. And you've explained that to me and changed my life. There are three challenges with taking medication. And the first challenge I call the challenge of remembering. And so the digital watch and the seven-day pillbox are supposed to solve this problem. And 
Our research has shown that people like to take their medications a little bit early. So if you're getting ready for breakfast, you're going to get up, you're going to shower, take your medication. But it says eight when you're supposed to take your medication, but you're taking it at 7.50 before you head downstairs to sit down at your desk and start work in the modern era. Um, and, and when your alarm goes off at eight on your digital watch, it's too late. You've already taken the meds. So what you're doing is you're negatively reinforcing that it's time to take your medication. You're starting to ignore this reminder. So the reminders that we thought we were going to have actually because of how humans are, <laughs> right. um, reinforce ignoring the reminder and that's it. Right. And, and text messages work generally the same way. Because so, we're learning so, the right lesson. We're learning to ignore a thing that we should ignore because we already took it most of the time. That's right. So then it gets more complicated because like, you take that medicine at the same time every day. So you sit at your desk, your alarm goes off, you look at it, and you think, did I take my medication or was that yesterday? So even if it reminds you, you probably will double up. You might double up or you might just assume you took it and so you miss one. Okay. So if you double up one day and miss it the next, you're 100% accurate at the end of the month. When the <laughs> pharmacist goes for the renewal, you're fine. So you've poisoned yourself one day, you've left yourself open to danger the other day. In clinical trials, for example, when we're studying these medicines, and I write articles all the time about how medicines don't work. Right? <laughs> we assume they don't work. And one, a good example, this is my article on Geodon, which has this kind of horrible quality of needing to take it twice a day and also needing to take it with food. Essentially, anything you need to take twice a day, people don't. And I'm writing about psychiatric medication because I'm a psychiatrist for a medicine that doesn't work at all. It doesn't matter if you don't take it. Right. But there oh, yeah. are some medicines where you know, epilepsy, for example, a transplant, you have to take the right medicine. And if you don't, you can die. And your research was demonstrating that not only do people routinely not take the right medicine, but our reminder systems failed in just the right ways and are reinforcing getting it wrong at best. And even when we're studying the medication, we're assuming people in a study are doing it right. But how often is that the case? So I noticed that all blister pack research has 98% success, right? They take 98% of the medication, which is a suspicious number in my mind, because it means they always leave one, right? The guilty pill, because they're out in the parking lot getting rid of all the ones they missed, but they don't want to be like, did you miss any? No, I, yeah, I missed. So I'm going to admit at least this one that I missed. People love pleasing researchers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm very suspicious of blister pack research. I think you really need, you need to have a container out there that looks like a garbage can, but it's a clean and camera measure of what people are dumping. <laughs> the human quality of wanting to get it right is biasing. And, 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 there's another interesting proof of that. <laughs> I can oh, really? jump in, Please. is that, that with cancer medications, like cancer discovered medication adherence when they went oral about 10, 15 years ago. So there were all these papers with jaws agape of these teenagers didn't take their medications any better, and it's chemotherapy. And they were missing it just as much as any other medication. 
and you can't really interrupt chemotherapy or it doesn't really work. So they're like, why are we having this problem? Even with something that will kill you, if you don't do, they were still just as accurate with medications as any older adult was with their lisinopril. Which, to be clear, isn't very accurate. What's the average actual adherence out in the world with anosinopril? So it's uh, 48% plus or minus 20 or something like that. So it's the the real, it's about 50% miss, but at least 30% of people are inconsistent. Mix the chemicals right, dear. Mix the chemicals right. Yeah, you know that you could. Save my life. So most people mess up their meds. More than half. It doesn't matter how much you want to. It doesn't matter how important it is. People just don't do that thing, which is take a pill every day at a time reliably. That's not true of everybody either. And it takes a while to get confused. When you have a year of taking medication at the same place at 8 a.m. in front of the mirror, that's when you get blurry. You don't remember breakfast three days ago. What did you have for breakfast three days ago, Owen? I I didn't eat it. You consistently don't eat breakfast, but maybe three days ago you might have. You just don't remember. So the story we tell ourselves about... Saturday morning. Maybe you went out or something. Mm -hmm. But you didn't think it was Saturday morning when I asked the question. Right, and so I blithely entered as if it was a regular day, but in fact it was on, on Saturday I made breakfast for the kids. And so I did eat breakfast that day and it was tofu sausages and sauerkraut. I lied to you and to myself because I wanted to do what everyone wants to do, just give an answer that sounds good. The other insight, even doctors were lying to me because they were like, I would love to know what, how adherent people are. But what they meant was when they're in the clinic in front of me, I would like to have a summary of how they did since the last time I saw them. They didn't really want to know what they did yesterday. They didn't want to have anything to do, it turns out, with making them take the pills. It took a long time to get a doctor to say that to me. I I care that they take the meds, but I want to have nothing to do with that happening. It would be a lot of work. Well, that's what they thought. (laughs) Right. The imagined work was so, right, it's easier to not tell you. And it's not very economically good either, because that's why we want to send you a bottle of 30 pills every month, like you took all of them. So we have this massive problem, which is we have modern medicine, which is based on taking pills, by and large. Seven men people are taking a life-saving critical medication at any given time, seven out of 10. And more than half of them do it wrong. Don't do it, I think, is the better way. Let's look at it half full. Sure. But they're, the pr- they're not terribly wrong, and they're not people dying every 15 minutes. Right. But- probably, that's probably the number. So there are <laughs> 125,000 deaths every year from not taking your medications correctly. So you, as an empiricist, essentially, you asked a very reasonable question, which is what happens in the real world 
when people try to do something that we assume for a bunch of reasons of convenience they do, but they empirically don't do like we think. Yes, I, I guess so. But I didn't understand it as that. For me, it was like, how can we keep my grandmother in her home an extra five years? Okay. So and that it, but, her dementia doesn't isn't the cause of her going into a memory unit when she could be living at home a little longer with a little help. What could that help be? What would well, that help look like? And, and you went from being a person who cared about your grandma to being a person who wanted to answer what seemed like a, a low-hanging fruit question, right? Because you don't have to develop a new pill to take the original pill, right? Yeah, it seemed like there were a lot of solutions, but none of them were designed to work. The answer here is that you, we need something that reinforces taking, but doesn't negatively reinforce not taking. <laughs> We want to reinforce taking. That's what we want to do. And we want to do nothing else. The problem is we want people to get a <laughs> good when they do the right thing. But we want to say nothing when they do it right on their own. And we really don't want to zap them for no reason that extinguishes behavior that we, we'd want to see. Everyone is learning all the time. We learn to lie to researchers so they smile at us. We learn to ignore alerts we should ignore. We learn to ignore things that are inconvenient, and we're, we're actually doing it right as people when we learn those lessons. It's rational to ignore reminders that don't remind you of anything useful. And yet, when we, as scientists- Every nurse you've ever worked with. <laughs> they're brilliant at ignoring alarms that should be ignored. It should, they should all be nuts. If, I, if they were musician nurses, they would be insane. I can't work in those settings because the alarms drive me up the wall. The audio of it, is, it turns out it's like a really... I'll give you an, an example. My cousin's a mastering engineer, and he needed dialysis, and he didn't want to go. And it turns out the reason he didn't want to go is it was noisy in this really unstructured way, and he hated it. And so he avoided dialysis for a lot longer than would have been healthy because the acoustical environment of a dialysis center was so aversive. It turns out I hate noise too. I'm here recording this podcast at night in my home because my office is a noisemaker that drives me up the wall and was going to ruin the audio. We learn to avoid <laughs> things that are aversive. Right, and, and I think there's a lesson here in medication taking as well. Because I think that the combination of the digital watch and pillbox, which is an alarmed pillbox, is what I call a temple of pills. And the temple of pills calls you over, like it reminds me of the time machine by Jules Verne, right? Where you where the horn goes out and they all wander down into the in into the into the tunnels to become food for the Eloys. That's whatever. actually the H.G. Wells, not the Jules. H.G. Wells, sorry, H.G. Wells. Yeah. My mother was married to his grandson. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah. You, you get called over to the temple of pills, and I think nobody likes having these inanimate objects tell them what to do. So I believe you build a negative relationship with your medication box and the pills that are in it subsequently. You're not in power. It's telling you what to do. And the solution is to make sure that you're training someone to be empowered to take their medication on their own. And so we designed a system that would do that.
you're helping people feel better about doing the things that they did right. I think when you're when the alarm goes off and you go over to the temple of pills, you eventually feel like you're not in control, like it's telling you what to do. You resent that and you start to resent your medications as a result. That makes it less likely you want to take your medications. What is your system and, and I guess now our system because I work on it? What does it do differently? I'll talk about cognitive prosthetics. What does a prosthetic do? It helps you when you need it, and it's not seen when you don't. That's the idea for me. So what we call smart alerting is that you have a window to take your medications. In the first half of the window, you have the ability to take your medications, and if you take them, it kills the alert. You're done. You're satisfied that you've taken it. You did it on your own. That reinforces the taking because you remain healthy. You're satisfied that you've made your doctor happy and you've made you happy. And, and then you go on with your day until the next dosing window. And if that day you're busy, you, you're brushing your teeth a little longer, you're making tofu sausage for the kids, your alarm goes off, you go, oh, I'm forgetting to take the meds because it's Saturday. I'm going to go do that now because it's a rare thing. Maybe you continue to make breakfast, you forget, you get one more alarm. And then the dosing window closes and you've forgotten. And now there's a record of that miss. You, you're empowered to take it on your own. Mm -hmm. And theoretically, you're going to get, as it's reinforced, Bandura says that's reinforcing. You empower single point of reference. Repeated behavior strengthens over time. Right? That's and 1960s psychology. So if we take our pills every day, we get rewarded because we talk to the doctor. And he's like, you took your pill every day. And so the, the Socratic pleasure of getting the smile from our doctor or family member as we've complied and that's represented later. Or your inner doctor. You don't need, actually need to hear it from the doctor. Your doctor would be happy. Your mother would be happy. It, we've internalized doing it right, but we're doing nothing to shock collar people into doing it wrong. And, and then when you are forgetting, it's you're being, in our system, you're being reminded in the ways you get reminded for everything. So it's on your smart speaker, or your smartphone, and your smartwatch, that you have something to do. And you're like, oh, yeah, it's time to take my meds. And now I'm walking over. I'm empowered to go and make the depositive decision. And the last piece is that you actually do the dispensing. The dispense is the record. So that was the last piece. You don't actually record anything. There's no diary to keep. The mm -hmm. dispense is the record. I joke with people, you don't have to ever worry that you're going to forget to check your text messages. <laughs> like... We exactly. reinforce the heck out of that. And this basically works the same way. Yeah. And if you are forgetting, that becomes rarer and rarer. So the alert is actually meaningful. So if there was, like, there will be a nurse, the, those nurses, there'll be that one sound that's, oh, God, that's heart attack sound. And they call the cold blue. But all the other the temperatures dropped a degree alerts. They did completely ignore those. So in this case, you're getting two positives. You're feeling good about being remembered. That you're feeling good about it, taking it most of the time on your own, and you appreciate the alert so that you didn't make an error. Because it's you reminding yourself to correct it on your own. So you're still empowered. So that's those are two wins. And only when you miss it do you get dinged. But that's a miss. You like had plenty of time. You got a reminder, and you still miss. Mm -hmm. So you should go, what's wrong with this? Oh, I got up early and left the apartment because I was taking the kids to the park before making the breakfast, or I was at a tofu and I had to go buy some and I, I left the apartment without taking my meds. So I'll go, oh, I need to make sure 
next time I leave that I take my meds before I go buy the tofu. And so it's letting us use our brains for what they're good at, which is solving problems, right? By letting us know there was a problem, for one thing, and only making it a problem when it is. Yeah, that exactly. Reinforce the right behavior. Let's talk about really reinforcing it. Let's give you a dollar every time you take your medication correctly, right? I think that that is the, I don't know how many times you've had a raise in your life, but according to you, when you were thinking about that first raise, that's more money than I've ever made. That's plenty for, I'll never need another raise. A week later, <laughs> I don't know if, I don't know if I've been an employee enough to even know. <laughs> yeah, but so as an IO psychologist, you'll just have to take my word for it. <laughs> that, that some people get that, paid and get raised. That, that it's an acceler. It's like an elevator acceleration curve. You're very happy for a short period of time, and then you're back to neutral. Yeah, and then you slowly become more and more discontent. And then you there's a an occurrence like your buddy got a raise and you didn't, and then mm -hmm. you're very negative again until something's corrected. I, I'm very nervous about either giving some kind of external reward for medication because that external reward might be removed and like there what i call the zynga problem I, I, there is a game like zynga I, game just have a bigger and bigger farmville uh, yeah task uh, for me it was mafia wars but whatever at some point i just went why am i behaving for this thing mm -hmm. this is stupid okay i get that they trained me to do this and it's cool that they did i'm gonna remember that yeah i'm but you don't want to do that with anything health related. Right. So you should be happy that you're healthy. That's enough reward, right? Soft, positive reward. Don't externalize it with, don't give your kids a dollar for every time they, they take their med correctly because they'll do it for the dollar. They won't do it for being healthy. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Owen Scott Muir, MD, and this is the Frontier Psychiatrist Podcast the companion publication to the frontier psychiatrist.substack.com. Subscribe and rate this as five stars because it helps discovery on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you happen to be listening. Have a great one.